0: WordCast episode 164, go! I'm Dylan Alvento, and today I'm joined by uh, Patrick Klepik, senior reporter at Waypoint and number one, the Quiet Man fan. How are you doing, (laughs) Patrick?
1: You know, uh, I, I don't know where that fits on my business card, above senior reporter, below senior reporter, but I'll... I'll take what I can get.
0: Yeah. Well, I listed it afterwards, so so we'll use that as a hierarchy.
1: Fair enough. I I have not uh, finished that game. I finished a lot of it at PAX, but I I have not made my way. <laughs> I don't think I need to be that. I feel like I saw enough.
0: I heard you just played 15 minutes though. It was just a 15 minute demo. Just
1: 15 minute demo that just I played over and over for two hours.
0: That yeah, it was hilarious though because talking to you about it, I feel like everyone had a Patrick Klepek Quiet Man story at PAX.
1: Yeah. No, it's made me extremely excited. Uh, that people were seeking out uh different types of games to expand you know what they think of video games And i think the, the quiet man is a, a world expanding experience
0: yeah i think someone called it the room of video games which i think is pretty sure. apt.
1: yeah that's that is probably that is probably not far off i don't know that it's going to go on to become a cult hit but it is it exists which is something i suppose
0: but how are things going patrick how are things at waypoint how are things in general
1: Oh, it's good, you know, uh, we're at a really interesting, you know, time of the the year in terms of game releases. There's just like a ton of different stuff to be playing and like a real wide variety of it. You know, it's like one evening I'm trying to decide if I like Red Dead Redemption 2 or not. And then another <laughs> evening I'm playing Tetris with a VR helmet on, you know, and I've got a whole back cataly- I Somehow I have not played Mega Man 11, um, but I'm excited about Thanksgiving. Um, I've been kind of like pushing aside a bunch of Switch games that I, I want to check out because uh, uh, I will hopefully have some time on the couch where I could actually spend some time with some of those. Do you do
0: a lot of traveling for Thanksgiving?
1: Uh, yeah, my uh, wife has family that we travel out to, driving seven hours there and back uh, for, for Thanksgiving. But uh, when we get there, it's just a lot of sitting around and drinking beer. So, uh, no, you know, not too bad. I I don't mind. I don't mind long distance driving. I get it's a chance like that too is a chance for me to catch up on a lot of podcasts that have been burning an archive. I guess it
0: depends on like how much you compress like seven hours. If it's seven hours over the span of a couple of days, that's fine. But like no if it's seven it's, hours, like,
1: you could do seven hours in a day. Come on, you, you
0: can do seven hours a day, but I don't want to. No, it's,
1: if you're if you, okay, if you're splitting right, up, right. if you're splitting up look, seven hours across multiple days, then maybe you should have just gotten in the plane.
0: All right. So, so preface this, I I was on a sports team in college sure. and we did a lot of traveling up and down the East Coast. And when you cram like 15 guys into a van and have to drive from central Virginia to like central Florida in the span of a day, it kind of breaks you just a little bit.
1: Uh well, I've got a 2-year-old this time, so I feel like it's <laughs> fairly similar.
0: Yeah. That that's your modifier for this mm-hmm. this road trip. Well, I brought up the quiet man thing. Because I thought it was really interesting, because like I said, I talked to, I kind of brought up that story to multiple people, and obviously uh, Jeff over at Giant Bomb was bringing it up a lot about his, like, indication to check out that game.
1: Yeah, for me, I refused, I said he couldn't leave PAX unless, he he was like, I don't want to go on the show floor, and I was like, I don't fucking care, go play that game.
0: You broke his show floor rule.
1: I did, I did, and it sounds like it was worth it, so.
0: Um... But it kinda reminded me of this uh this article you wrote a little while ago talking about like your relationship with fans. I forgot I forget when it came up. I think it was like when Pick a YouTuber went off the reservation.
1: Yeah. I wanna say it was it was spurred uh I want to say the original idea was spurred by Dr. Disrespect. Right. Um, yes, that's yeah. Um when he did a uh, sort of like confessional video around the fact that he had, um, uh, you know, there, he's having relationship troubles. It sounded like he had cheated on his wife and uh, he was saying all that stuff in a video. And uh, that just kind of got my wheels spinning on, yeah, this notion of what you owe the people that, um, you know, help support your work.
0: and what And how much of it is like performative? Like how much of that, that action of and of itself is like, is that for him? Is that for his audience?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I, I don't know, doctor, I don't know the doctor. Not uh, trying to make a judgment. Um, but yeah, like there is a performative aspect to, uh, putting different parts of your life on display in which you are increasingly rewarded for transparency. Um, um, because people connect to authenticity right like that's 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 key to the rise of personalities um even uh, prior to sort of like the proliferation of twitch and, and YouTube you know you saw things like that at, at both giant bomb and at the at, uh, one up and uh, places that were kind of like on the ground floor of the, the notion of a byline meaning something and um, you know a lot of that comes from a sense of authenticity but authenticity can also be performative and then it's also at what point like how much of that, do you owe like you can't you know can you can't you just say like i'm taking some time to myself do you have to tell people that like you cheated on your wife you know so there's all sorts of lines there that got me thinking about you know what you do and don't share or what lines we do and don't cross and and you know it's a very personal decision um that is is oftentimes based on how much of your brand to put it in crassest terms are is based on that measure of authenticity. You know, some people are just like a really good reporter or a critic and their personal lives have very little to do with the reason that people are interested in what they have to say or what they do. Do you, do
0: you feel like that's enough? Cause there, there, there's a point in the article where you wrote, um, because it, like you talked about your pre giant bomb life and your post giant bomb life, like how you kind of transitioned from being a reporter to like an internet personality who also did reporting. And I think, If I have an understanding of your work correctly, like you, you, you do very good reporting work and I think you value that and everything, but like, does, I don't know, does the personality aspect or like all that performative stuff kind of, is it necessary? I feel like it it probably is necessary if you want to build a following, but is it, I don't know, is it healthy? (laughs) Is it good for the long term?
1: I don't know about that part. Probably no. Um, but, uh, in terms of whether it's necessary, I mean, it's all about like hedging bets, right? You know, uh, I I work in media. I tend to cycle between jobs every couple of years, sometimes for my own reasons, sometimes for reasons that are out of my uh, control. And the uh, ability to build a brand, a following, an awareness that goes beyond just your connections amongst coworkers and colleagues and and people that are in your business is uh, important because it's a... You know, as we've seen lots of people successfully transition that into things like Patreon um, that have nothing to do with, you know, working for a traditional uh, employer. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's it's something I give a lot of thought to. I, I definitely have like re- – I had sort of like a grand reevaluation of that when my daughter was born, which I believe I went to, into in that piece about, you know, essentially – coming to the conclusion that I need to, like, share. I needed to tell people I had a kid. Um, but then what do I do beyond that? And for for me it was, uh, yeah, I think I've shared a couple of photos of her and I think mostly on Instagram where I have a smaller uh, following. But even then I eventually just kind of cut that out and I think I went back and deleted even the ones that had been posted because I just, that's something I wanted to keep for myself um which is not to say that's the rule for everyone right like i have friends and colleagues that are spamming their kids everywhere on every <laughs> social media platform check it out um, check it out and that's fine i'm not saying that's bad i just decided i wanted to claw back a little bit for me and i think that was largely based on the idea that i had continued to find continued to put more of myself out there as opposed to less i think that like started at giant bomb continued with sort of like the passing of my father in which I went through like a very like uh, like emotional, personal thing in a very public way. And uh, it just felt like the stakes kept getting higher and higher. And at some point, um, it, I felt a desire to try and pull back on that in a way that uh, I, do, I don't think was going to impact, you know, my ability to cultivate a following and have people interested in my work. Um, not having photos of my... My kid flipping me the middle finger and other <laughs> weird things the kids do. Like, I could probably get by without that.
0: Yeah. I, um, I used to, when I was a teenager, I listened to this uh, podcast with a bunch of web cartoonists on it. One of them was, uh, Dave Kellett, and he went into this big thing about expressly not sharing his kids online, not just because, like, for the reasons that you expressed, but also because there's a certain amount of, like, protectionism involved with it, because obviously you don't want, you know, they can't defend themselves if they're at a young age or, like, you well, know, you do they have don't... no
1: agency, right? Like, it's like right. it's one thing if my kids 10 or, I don't know, what you know, whatever it, I'm... Whatever age, some some age in which they're participatory in the act. Um, and even then, like, how does... What does a 7-year-old know about being shared to 200,000 strangers on the internet? You know what I mean? Like, so I think there's a... For me, there's a caution over uh th- th- you know, my child was born, they did not ask to be born into that specific life, and so if at some point in the future they choose to engage in social media or, or things like that, that would be something that they choose to do, as opposed to something that I thrust upon them uh, because I'm thirsty for likes and retweets <laughs> and hearts on Instagram.
0: Do you ever think of the day when your child or your children find like the entirety of a, a podcast archive? Or something I to effect.
1: sincerely doubt that my kid is going to be give any sort of shit about like reading <laughs> listening to my podcast. I mean it's possible sure i it, if I end up in a world where my kid is digging through the archives of all the things I've done on the internet, then my kid needs to find better hobbies uh so <laughs> uh yeah i don't i don't I don't worry about that part too much. children tend to reject the interests of their parents, so <laughs> I don't know if that I have too much to worry about there.
0: that's fair enough. Yeah, I guess like I don't want to listen to my old man talk for hundreds of hours. Are you kidding me?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go watch my dad play uh, Dark Souls (laughs) for uh, 20 hours. Yeah, that sounds like a good use of my time.
0: (laughs) Uh, That'd be great. But so it's just interesting, like that that kind of that meshing of I don't I don't know if you want to call it uh, um, fame or stardom or whatever, but that and then like your regular job being a reporter and being a journalist it's 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 a weird thing and I feel like it gets even weirder you've you've talked about it before on the waypoint podcast about how like the over familiarity that comes up on like twitter interactions with fans and readers and and listeners or you know I'm sure it extends to like real life interactions as well and how do you how do you how do you i don't know what's your what's your observation on that
1: i mean uh, you know uh I, well, I mean one thing I'll note is that I've had nothing but wonderful interactions with people in in real life. I've, I've been very fortunate in that regard. I think I only... There was a time where there was a Chicago C2E2. there's this expo, and I was moderating a panel with some game developers. And uh, someone came up to me. It was a GamerGator. And was like... Like, dude, just came up to me and was like, How do you explain seven editorials going up all at the same time saying <laughs> gamers are dead? And I was like, are you are you fucking kidding me? Like, you exist? Like, people do this? <laughs> and granted, I know that, I know, I, I right. intrinsically know that's true because I have all sorts of, uh, I know all sorts of women and I have, and, have read and uh, listened to all sorts of women dealing with that shit on a much uh, bigger scale um, and much more frequently than I have. Um, but, like, that's like the worst that's ever happened to me. Um, again, you know, there are caveats there with sort of my position of privilege, but uh, I... I I've always had really good interactions with uh, fans in real life. And it's been – I worried about it more when my wife and I settled down. We bought a house a couple of years back and, uh, like, had my wife, like, lock down her Instagram and location data stuff. And it's just, like, I I worried a lot about people knowing – I was like, now we own a place and we're stuck here for a while. So, um, like, I was just increasingly worried about – you know, sharing details about specifically where we lived and and things that we did. Um, And, uh, you know, I've been recognized a couple of times, like, around where we live. And it's fine. Those people have been very nice. But, like, also people have been, like, so deeply respectful because, like, they clearly heard me talk about this in other places. So, like, we were trick-or-treating with my daughter at, like, a local uh, outdoor mall. And then I got home and saw I had a DM from someone that said, uh, hey, saw you. It's trigger or treating to want to say hi, but I saw you with your, your kid and your wife, you know, just want to, you know, just want to be respectful and leave you alone. And I was like, that's cool. Like you could have said hi, but like, that's a really nice thing that you like res- tried to respect the boundaries in, in that way. So, you know, I think, uh, it, it also relates to me that like communicating those boundaries is really important, um, because the people that care about your stuff the most are also probably going to be the kinds of people that take that into account, um, if they if they end up having a a real life interaction with you
0: and i just think there's kind of a fear on on there and like me being a fan of of many reporters and and people in the in the game's press side and also in the game dev side like you don't you don't want to go up and just like make a bad impression or ruin that person's day and i'm i'm thinking as like a, a fan like best case scenario a fan wants to be remembered and i think worst case scenario a fan does not want to like ruin someone's day and at, at the bare minimum they just want to have a good interaction with the you know people they respect
1: right right yeah no i think that's absolutely true
0: and, it, and it's just it's a it's a weird thing when you have someone just in your ears once a week or twice a week or however often <laughs> right right and you're just like wow i like i know a lot about this person but i i don't want to strike up a conversation. Be like, "Hey, Patrick, tell me about this oddly specific thing that <laughs> I heard this one time you say." That's right. not weird, right? So I, I, I just I always think about that. Like, what's what's that what's that relationship like? Because I, I feel like you you matter to a lot of people because you're able to speak and people listen to you, and and I think people just want to reciprocate that back to the people they follow.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I sincerely appreciate that. Like, I mean, I you know, express this on a recent Waypoint podcast that, you know, for as long as I've been doing this, I, it still always means a lot when people say they're thankful for stuff I do or appreciated something or found something useful or insightful. I mean, that, um, that, that never changes. Like that is always a very validating and, uh, cool thing to hear from folks that for as long as I've done this, that, that still is a nice thing to hear from people. Um, so, uh, yeah, like that, that's a, it's a two way street for sure.
0: Where where do you think you see like all this stuff going? Because obviously, like they're very large outlets and very large people with very large um, followerships or listenerships. And then I feel like a lot of people, say myself included, are very, you know, inspired or influenced by, you know, those people, and they create their own things. And the good and bad about the internet is that there's this democratization of everything. So then you have like hundreds or thousands of podcasts or very small outlets. And I don't think it's like they want the fame, like oh, I just need to have the same follower count as Patrick Klepek, and then I'll know I made it. I think it's uh, at least for me, I'll speak personally. I think it's like you you want to know that your voice counts because I think there's valid there's validation in that. There's a validation said so I said something, and it either resonates with someone or it like ties well with people in my field at the same thing. Like if I make an observation, someone else who I know has a, you know, longstanding knowledge of this industry, a longstanding history, like knowing the way things are going and they, they say something similar. It's like, Oh, okay. Like I know I'm at least like, and I'm not talking about like taste, right? Like obviously there should not be homogenization of, of taste. Not everyone should like the same games and trumpet the same, the same creators. But I think like in terms of understanding where the industry is going or understanding important social issues that are going uh throughout games i i i always see that because i mean obviously on the indie dev side and i know you guys probably have talked about this before but there's a huge threat there's the indie apocalypse i think we've had like eight indiepocalypses at this point and i'm sure on the games press games enthusiasm games journalist side there's also that same fear it's like oh i like waypoint i'm gonna make a podcast add that to the thousand game podcast in existence but I think I think there's still value in each one of those being created
1: yeah no I th- yeah uh, you know there's a really interesting piece that we uh, I don't know when the podcast's going up but the um, well it'll have been a couple of weeks back by the time uh, this is published um, but there's a piece by Liz Ryerson um, in Disorbital I believe was the publication in which you know like one of the things she argues is that the end apocalypse is overrated um, and that uh, and the reason for that is that the, if our measure of success is the capitalistic impulse of did it sell well, um, is not necessarily the 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 bar we should be using to determine success. You know, culture is informed by all manners of creation, some that are commercial, some that are uh, purely artistic, some that are or most that are usually somewhere in between, um, and that all kind of informs the larger capital C. Culture in in different ways, and I uh, you know I think that's true both in game development and in uh, games media. You know I, I have fully uh, appreciated, embraced, and enjoyed the sort of democratization of of games media. I I know so many more interesting people than I did before. I have learned so much from so many different people that I wouldn't have if that circle has stayed as small as it used to be. Um, it means that I have to find new skill sets. It means I have to be more competitive. It means I have to be more interesting. Uh, I think it has, the, the the for whatever concerns it has created in terms of, you know, it flattening the landscape or, or making it that there are more people competing for fewer jobs, I, I think it has been equally beneficial in uh, forcing me to understand just, you know, Where are people going? Where are the viewers, listeners? And uh, where's the money going? Like, how do I adapt to that uh, going forward? Because my job has changed all sorts of different ways uh, along the way. Um, And, you know, that's like the crass uh, sort of commercial aspect of it to make sure that I can pay my mortgage and put food on the table for my family. But, um, you know, it's like I grew up largely around straight white dudes and their opinions on video games. Like, that is now I work for a Black EIC, right? Like so like things have just shifted in such a fundamental way that I I have found it just personally really invigorating, um, because it just means that my my own reactions to things are being informed by a broader understanding of people that come from all sorts of different uh backgrounds, uh influences, tastes, uh observations, and you know, that's that's all a really positive thing from, from my perspective.
0: Definitely. I definitely think like variation in perspectives and opinions and, and tastes and backgrounds like helps inform this this industry for the better and i mean i still think we we have probably a, a large way to go both within games and, and culture at large but hopefully we're moving in a, a positive direction right
1: yeah i think so yeah
0: um kind of well, I kind of want to make a, a, a detour to... I don't know if you saw that Thrillist article that came out about that uh, that burger place because we were talking about authenticity and going where clicks and stuff go. Did you see this? I know Rob Sackney shared uh,
1: it. Yeah, Rob uh, mentioned it, uh, that it was an article to read and I, I filed it away on my Instapaper queue, but I, I, I have not had a chance to read it yet, no.
0: So um, it's okay if I just kind of tell you the gist because I thought it was sure, kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so basically it was a... a, a He was a editor at large at Thrillist and he was kind of, he was also a food critic and it was, he said like when Facebook made this big change to like prioritize listicles and listed articles and he basically saw these listicles being like shared and and redone over and over again. And because it it was difficult to like create uh, your own article of that sort, and so he made it his goal to make a uh, find like the best burger in America by going. I think he said he, he went across like 30 American cities and sampled like 330 burgers to like find what he thought was like the best burger in America. And then in doing so, he 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 showcased this very small mom and pop place in Portland and basically ran them out of business because then it just became kind of a, an attraction for tourists and food tourists in general. And it's basically him kind of coming to terms with the fact that, hey, if we didn't always try to find the, the authentic in life and the best of the best, like <laughs> this business would, would still be standing because they wouldn't have shuffled all these people to this destination spot. And I just thought it was interesting because like, because of podcasts, because of stuff like that, I feel like people are constantly searching for that authenticity and, and things to connect to.
1: Yeah, no, I I, th- I think that's, uh, you know, authenticity is a, the common buzzword these days, you know, whether it's in in games, media, or politics, I mean, I think there there is so much noise, and there is so much your eyes can be drawn to that, you know, authenticity, uh, whether performative or actually like genuinely authentic, like that is something that people grapple to because you're just trying to find things to to ground yourself in, and so, you know, the notion the notion of authenticity uh, goes goes a long way, and is and is just fundamentally different than how we've thought about authority in the past you know it was uh it it was not necessarily about authenticity or or bylines like that that is a fundamentally sort of new shift in how we think about how we consume ideas uh thoughts opinions um sort of in the modern age
0: i'm very curious like what the shift what like the post authenticity shift is going to be if it because i mean that kind of it went from commoditization i would say to authenticity but then what comes after authenticity it's not like do we do we swing back to commoditization
1: yeah time is a flat circle i'm sure i'm sure we'll just return back to the to to what worked before
0: i guess but also in the in the realm of criticism and games criticism i don't know if you checked out this jessica price piece that i threw here in the show notes where she was talking about the the search for real criticism I don't know if you've seen this.
1: I did. Yeah, I did see that. I was uh confused by that piece.
0: <laughs> I was also kind of confused, but uh I feel like it resonated with some people and I feel like you know, I I I I hang out with a lot of indie devs. Some of them more underground than than others. I would say that like even within the indie sphere, there's probably like the more commercial indie and then the extremely less commercial indie um and everyone kind of charts themselves on that on some sort of similar spectrum. And I feel like when it comes to talking about what real criticism is, I just feel like it, it's, it's, it comes down to taste really. Like, I don't, I don't know like what, what Jessica meant in this by saying that there's a lack of games criticism. I and
1: mean, then she's just not looking. I don't know where she's <laughs> like, I don't know where she, she's looking. Cause I don't, I don't think she's looking. I think like we have seen such a fundamental shift, especially in the last 10 years, in which, you know, whether you're talking even, you know, very foundational uh, places like IGN have had, you know, it's it, 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 criticism is is everywhere. We have we have moved even at places like IGN and Gamespot away from. I mean, there are still residual effects, um, uh, vestiges of, of of the way we approached uh, reviewing games uh, before, but I mean, I. I go you know kataku's most recent review about the new pokemon game involves like a sequence in which gita jackson talks about the game making her cry and it's like okay like i mean that's i don't know what she's looking for like go to critical distance like go to unwinnable like go to uh deorbital like there are lots of places where there is uh deep nuanced thoughtful criticism of games occurring that is more than just are the graphics good like we we have moved past that even at the biggest websites in the world in a lot of ways. Um, so I don't like there are, 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 yeah, I, I was confounded by that essay because I, th- I think it just shows a lack of uh, curiosity to seek criticism out. I think there are plenty of places where lots of good criticisms occurring. It's just a matter of putting in the work to go find it.
0: Yeah, I w- I would agree. And like you said, I think even the bit, the bigger outlets, still like do not not even just reviews but criticism way differently because i think like historically i think when people said criticism people interpreted reviews and what that review scores in like a, a commercial validation right. of a game but now i think criticism is games criticism it's 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 it can be tied to a review for the game with a recommendation or it can just be its own thing like um I think it, because I talked to some of my, my colleagues about this, and I think it ties closely to the fact that I think people that share Jessica's opinion are still frustrated that even if the criticism is good, it's still tied to a marketing cycle or marketing push.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's true. That's it's also just, I mean, these websites are running a business. Um, that's, that's, you know, it, it is you know uh, I wish I could spend every day just writing about whatever I wanted and not thinking about how that ties into what people are interested in but that is not the case And also like I people are interested in people want to hear about a game that people are interested in. I mean I think I we you know especially at waypoint we try and run the spectrum we try and speak to and react to the the biggest games and we try and to speak to and react to smaller games knowing full well that nobody's going to click on that. Um, but for the people that do, hopefully they get something meaningful out of it. And, um, you know, that's always a balance, um, because the time you spend on that means the time you're not spending on a piece that potentially help with your traffic goals and your traffic goals lead to resources, allocations, resource allocations mean hiring critics from marginalized communities, bringing in new people that don't have jobs, you know, it's like all that stuff. It's, it's a careful, difficult, uh, balance, um, but the And, you know, I get in some ways that ties into the notions of the Indiepocalypse where there's just so many things to be writing about that, uh, you know, picking and choosing what to jump on uh, can can itself be challenging.
0: Right. And I, I, I think it's also tied into that as well. It's, it's I think it's frustration from smaller developers and smaller creators that feel like all of, all of these resources are given still being given the triple A. And so there's not lights being shown on smaller games because maybe the smaller games don't have the the marketing resources or maybe not even any marketing resources but right. I feel like that it's it's just it's difficult to get above the noise and I feel like if a game that's like this this gem this diamond in the in the rough I don't think that's for lack of trying I think it's like you said it's limited resources like I mean I don't think a reporter can spend their whole day sifting through itch as much as a lot of people enjoy doing i just don't think it's it's manageable there's just there's there's so much stuff that you need to find like a different funnel to get to the stuff that you'd want to showcase and be interested in whether you need recommendations from other people i mean look at the look at the you are jeff bezos twine game like i mean obviously chris like kind of hit on something and, and obviously he had a following and such but he he created something that kind of hit a nerve and was able to be shared. I don't think like that means his creation is more important than other people's, but like he was able to get his stuff out there just by right place and right time. And I think that's frustrating to a lot of people that just want to create and then have their creations be discussed.
1: Right. Yeah. No, that's a, a, a <laughs> that challenges uh, existed uh, for time immemorial. And unfortunately it's probably only going to get more difficult with, uh, you know, the flattening of of game development which is more and more people can make stuff but yeah
0: and i think um because i had one of my colleagues say uh something to the effect of like I, w- I wish i saw the larger outlets include smaller games in their criticism and at that point i was just kind of like well I, I i honestly feel like you're not paying attention because and i'm not saying like any any of the large outlets are perfect but i mean if you look at the like for the year, her story came out. It was Polygon's number one game of the year. For the year, Gone Home came out. It was Polygon's number one game of the year. And like, right. and you see smaller games constantly be in the conversation. And then when people say like, okay, but those aren't like the small games I'm talking about, and then I feel like it's like, all right, well you're you're moving the goalpost. Like I don't <laughs> I don't know what you want.
1: Uh, yeah, it's uh, uh that is a it's a constant challenge. And, you know, I, I think it's it's fair you know to to, to criticize publications for not putting in not making sure they're reminding them to try and find that balance. That's something that we appreciate from our readers when they, they ask us to, to make sure we're shining a light on smaller stuff. And we want to make sure that we're putting our, uh, you know, yes, like we d- do write about and talk about the big games. Cause that uh, it's both useful to understand critically and think through critically of like the, the games that most represent video games to a, an extremely large audience. Um, but also, uh, you know spending the time to give that same sort sort of full-throated critical uh, analysis and 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 process to to smaller games because just again like speaking to you know this Liz Ryerson piece that I mentioned earlier that just because it's not a, a a commercial success does not mean that it isn't critically important and um so it's 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 finding those those ways to to carve out time and and effort and and resources to make sure you you're, you're giving those experiences their due as well
0: yeah i agree on that note do you what are some small games you've played this year that you feel like you really wanted to trumpet i i really enjoyed what, what was that game that you played at at west that we saw at the same time that mm. that strategy game
1: yeah, I don't remember what that was called. I want to say it was like Star
0: Renegades, Star Renegades, right?
1: Sure, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, I keep a list of the games, uh, the major games I play each year. I'm, so I'm looking through my list now. Yoku's Island Express, wonderful game from earlier this year. It's a mashup of Metroid and Pinball. It's really wonderful, great Switch game. Um, that's like a, a one that I was super did not have my radar. Like fell in love with it. and It's one of my favorite games of the year. um Moss, uh, a VR game uh, that came out at the beginning of the year, where you play like a this little mouse. It's just a really smart use of VR. um Really a nice little story. Uh, and there was another one. Another VR Astrobot was a VR game that I played uh, a month or so back. It's uh, made by Sony of all. Uh, company, it's a truly tremendous VR platformer. um
0: I, So, out of curiosity on that one, mm-hmm. I have heard that some people saying it's like one of the best 3D platformers, just period. Is that?
1: I, mean, is I think it, it's really good. I, I think if you, you know, I think the uh in my review of it, I mentioned that if if you had put Nintendo's logo on it, I don't think anyone would have blinked, which is you know one of the higher compliments you can give to a to a platformer given that there are lots of people making platformers but you know i think when they're like hey who makes the you know when you think of platformers nintendo just comes to mind they have a certain uh seal of quality uh, uh to their work and <laughs> well they used to um, but yeah 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 exactly <laughs> um and uh yeah it's just a it's, it's very charming well made um very enjoyable uh and and a very good use of vr uh, as well you know i don't think it's one of the you know, it's always hard to – where does a game fall in a hierarchy when you're in the midst of playing it? You know, I think that's always a really tough thing to, to judge. That's usually better considered when you have some separation from it and you can kind of get a better sense of where your feelings fall. But, uh, you know, it, it is a tremendous platformer. I, I I do think it's a great game, one of the best games this year. You know, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to say it's as good as Super Mario 3D World or something like that. Um, but uh, it, it is very good. I, that is That part is absolutely true.
0: I do. I do love your your trumpeting of Mario 3D World as well.
1: Yeah, man, I'm gonna keep banging that drum. I really want Nintendo to port that to Switch, so more people will understand how good that game is. I I think 3D Land is is equally excellent, but given that game was designed for the 3DS, even if they ported it to the Switch, it would, you know, it's just it's not. Th- it's going to lose something in that process. It wasn't like designed from the ground up for a console, so it's going to look like a you know an handheld game. So it's just going to it's not going to be as impressive due to the format switch. But um, I think three D Land might be a better game than three D World. But three D World is a very good game. I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to playing three D World again because I'm just assuming they're going to port it. Because if I say it enough times, then hopefully right. I can just will it into existence.
0: I mean, Wii U new Super Mario Brothers U Deluxe. Is that the one is that what it's called? That's
1: the new one. That comes out in February, I think. I didn't play that. Um, but people swear people swear by that game as being like surprisingly excellent despite the really shitty art. So I'm uh-huh. um, I'm I'm oh yeah, I, I loathe the new Super Mario Brothers art style. It's it's garbage. But um supposedly the levels are really well designed. I it's maybe apocryphal, but I have this vague memory that someone had told me the levels in that game were like designed by like up and coming level designers like it was like you know people like junior folks that they're trying to train through the ranks um so at leads to like some really interesting unconventional uh level design so I, i'm excited to play that one that comes out i could i i know it's going to be a couple of years before we get another proper mario platformer um because odyssey just came out but um or, or you know came out last year uh, but uh yeah so i'll, I'll take that
0: right I would really prefer if they just gave me new worlds for Odyssey, if they just had some sort of DLC system for that.
1: Yeah, I have to imagine they're going to put out some real DLC for that at some point. But yeah, so far not are so you much. Calling,
0: are you calling Luigi's Balloon World not real?
1: Not- yes, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking the controversial stance of, of establishing that as not real.
0: Wow all these Luigi balloon fans.
1: <laughs>
0: it, I mean it's a very good uh mode to grind for coins. So if you really want that skeleton suit, you can get it really easy if you play that mode. Fair. Um anything else any other super small? I saw you were talking about vampire again on the latest episode.
1: Yes, Rob's playing Rob Zach is playing vampire at that my might be my favorite game this year it's in the top three for sure uh i really liked vampire a lot and i'm excited that it's coming to switch next year so that hopefully most more people will give it a chance i think it's a super underrated uh overlooked game um so i'm yeah it's just a, it's doing a lot of interesting things with systems and storytelling and yeah that is that is definitely up there it's like why did everyone play detroit become human it's <laughs> flashier i played it it's not good you should go play vampire instead
0: i i, I really like life's strange so i'm excited to eventually get to vampire
1: yeah totally yeah, yeah i think people should put it on their put it on their list that's like a good holiday game there's a it's a it's a meaty game to play maybe while you got a couple of days off
0: right is there um any plans for i because i know you guys kind of do like non-traditional game of the year style structure i think the first year was like waypoint high school right was that the yeah, Is that the style uh, yearbook,
1: I think, was the 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 setup. Um, yeah, we haven't even talked about what we're doing for the end of the year yet, so I couldn't spoil it if I wanted to. I sure, I have no idea what we're doing, and we'll be doing something. We have some meetings about it soon, but we haven't uh, quite put that together yet.
0: But do you prefer like a more non traditional approach as opposed to like, okay, we here's our top ten list or here's our our
1: structure for it? Yeah, um, you know, we don't. You know, I mean, our rules are pretty lax. Like, I'm Hollow Knight's going to be one of my favorite games of the year. That game came out last year. I don't give a fuck. Like, <laughs> I played it this year. It came out on Switch this year, so whatever. Um, yeah, you know, I think you know we're always trying to embrace highlighting. What we bend our game of the year to whatever is going to let us highlight the games that we want to champion. So if that means shoehorning awards in order so that we can say it won something or so we can write about it, like that's fine. You know, that's that's what it's really about at the end of the day is like making sure you can uh, you know, take some time to celebrate the stuff that had an impact on you during that year.
0: Yeah. I saw, I because like the game awards uh, nominations came out and I saw um, someone talking about how it feels odd that Red Dead Redemption two is on that list because it's so recent. And my, my purview has always been like, if, if a game's coming out between November in like February, it's going it's going to have a tough time if it wants to be considered for one of these types of lists, just because it's just there's there's no time. Everything everything's getting pinched at the same time. So I I'm a, I'm in agreement with you about like game of the year lists that are just like this game had to have been released in this calendar year. Seem I don't know. I I like them, but at the same time, I feel like it it gives certain games short shrift.
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely true. That's definitely you know I, I'm I was a concern when games I'm looking forward to or to come out in December. There's this uh, platformer that's this kind of artsy platformer called Greece, Gris, G R I S. Um I think it's Gris? Sure. I why think not? it's French. Um uh yeah, that game comes out the first week of December, which bums me out. Um I mean I'll find time for it. I just don't think most other people will. Um unless it's like tr- truly transcendent um and spectacular, and then it kind of like breaks out of that mold. But uh Yeah, uh, it's it, yeah, it's uh yeah, that's that's too bad for games like that. But I understand why people Try and push to get out in December, so you can try and get some of those sales.
0: Right. Uh, cool. Patrick, is there is there anything on on your mind? Anything else left unsaid?
1: It's, it's, it's Friday evening. I I got a story to finish, then I can drink some beers and relax. So that's what that's for my mind. My mind is trying to turn my mind off. So that's that's where I'm headed towards.
0: Fair enough. Um. Well, I thank you for coming on.
1: Sure, of course.
0: Really appreciate it. Really appreciate uh, getting to talk to you and hang out at PAX West. Absolutely. And obviously all the people at Waypoint are awesome and enjoy everything you guys do.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Um, Patrick, where can people find you?
1: They can find me, unfortunately, on Twitter, uh, at Patrick Klupek. I'm still there, (laughs) despite all evidence to the contrary that we should still be on that platform. I'm still there.
0: On the bird site. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I Okay, Re- reopening conversation, just real quick, because I, I did want to talk about that, because I feel like Twitter is kind of a, I mean, obviously across multiple industries, I'm sure, but I feel like there's this constant shifting of people that are very active on Twitter and then unactive on Twitter, just because a combination of Twitter being what it is, and also kind of what we were talking about before, like, you know, how much you want to constantly be online or constantly be performative. Do you think we're constantly just going to see a shrinking of the game Twitter being relevant?
1: No, it's, Twitter is too valuable in terms of sharing the work that you do. So there's a reason that you see all sorts of folks that grumble about Twitter on Twitter. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it's not going anywhere. I mean, sure. I mean, there'll be some folks that, you know, decide to, to get off and, you know, if that's uh, if you're able to do that and keep your career going, and if it's better for your personal well-being and self-help, um, you know, more power to you. But I, like, I'm not going anywhere because like there's the ability to share my work. Like, Twitter is a vital, uh, critical aspect of that. Um, you know, I remember when I joined uh, Kotaku and we would chuckle because um, you know I had like the the highest follower count, and so when we a short story would get published. Uh, I would send more traffic than the official Kotaku account to that story, Um, which makes sense because it's a, it's a blind brand account as opposed to a highly personal account. So, you know, my 160,000 followers technically pales in comparison to a million plus, but it's like, you know, I have um, uh, way more engaged followers than, than, than Kotaku's thing does. So, you know, it's just to go, it's just, you know, again, as part of that idea of having things that are independent of the, platform or publication or company you work for. Twitter, for all its problems, are is an important part of that for me. So, yeah, I don't – and I – there are all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, people of color and queer uh, critics that I follow on Twitter that I don't know. Like, if I disappeared from Twitter, I don't know how I would follow their work and opinions as closely. So, like, Twitter is a valuable part of my sort of, like, personal – the observational ecosystem in which I'm, you know, sort of constantly trying to make sure that I'm hearing from voices that are different from my own. And I don't, if I became locked into just like private messaging channels with folks that I knew like that would just not happen nearly as much. Right.
0: Yeah. And same, same for me. I, I use it a lot to kind of see where the pulse is of, of games. Um, but so you've heard it here first, folks, Patrick Klepek at Patrick Klepek until the end of time. You'll find them there.
1: Yep, I'll just die on Twitter. Why not?
0: <laughs> uh, I'm going to periscope this funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you enjoyed this podcast, you want to listen to any of our other podcasts, you can find them at ward or on Twitter, at Ward Video Games, or just search for the podcast, Wardcast, in your podcast app of choice. Patrick, thank you again.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course.